Welcome to the pod. Today we're joined by Jally Whiskey, the foremost expert on Nash equilibrium and, and asymptotic money as it relates to Bitcoin. Before I introduce him, I just want to recap the events leading up to this interview. Basically, this whole thing blew up on crypto Twitter last week, and I've, I've never seen anything like it, quite frankly. So, Petey McCormick had on Shinobi, and I don't know what to say, but he basically lied about Nash equilibrium, and McCormick didn't even call him on it. But, you know what? The thing that really gets to me is that I would expect this type of behavior from a troll like Mario Gibney, who just like hates Nash with passion, like he hates him. But I'm really surprised McCormick didn't call him out on it and tell him, you know, he's talking shit. But anyways, let me introduce Jal and maybe he can provide a bit more background and context on this scandal. So, uh, so Jal, first off, welcome to the pod and uh, fill us in. Right on, man. Thanks very much for having me. And uh, no, you totally got all that wrong, too. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, so I, I guess that's the talking point. Shinobi uh, did go on McCormick's show, and he opened a. Uh, he started to say, "I'm going to open a like a, a rabbit hole here," and it's still unclear to me whether or not what he said was true about what Nash did back in the '50s. Um, it, it's a little technical, and I I can never get into a proper discussion with these guys, but. Um, he never did go down the rabbit hole, though, is the interesting part, I think. He um, he sort of shied away from it and then changed the sub subject. Now, now, what was the claim again? So you were saying that um, Shinobi claimed something about Nash. It, it's escaping me at the moment. I, I thought that um, he had said that Nash created elliptical curve. Right, right, right. Uh, cryptography. And then, so they he denies that and we have a mutual friend nothing much which is who's pretty technical with math and and who i kind of trust and he said no you're being really he's like you're kind of right but you're being kind of petty and so i still never got to understand it but i don't mind being petty i i, I see a lot of people misrepresent his work and uh, i think it needs a real good look right right now like you i know a lot about nash equilibrium but for That's the right. lay but for the layperson in the audience, what is Nash Equilibrium? Uh, this was a paper that came out um, in the 1950s. John Nash obviously wrote it. He won a Nobel Prize for it later on, uh, I think in 1994. And it basically was an observation that he formalized, which said that all a certain type of games, all finite non-cooperative games do in fact have a solution. And the solution he defines is um, that no player can unilaterally deviate from their strategy and gain. So it's a little bit technical, but the idea is that um, he showed these solutions do in fact exist for these games. And that in itself became um, pretty revolutionary and is very relevant to economics. So how does that relate to the topic of Bitcoin and asymptotic money? With, with Bitcoin, you, there's a lot of game theory involved in, in different levels and everyone's always talking about it. Um, the, the miners have incentive to mine on, on the main chain or the longest chain or what we call BTC. And if like at certain times they could join coalitions and um, go against say uh, the nodes, etc. But they have to do this um, as a team, there has to be an altruistic aspect. And the fact that they can't do it unilaterally, one miner can't change by themselves and gain keeps them together on the same chain. So that self-interested nature um, makes it all relative to what would be the Nash equilibrium. 
Right, right. So do we want to talk a bit about, uh, about safety in for a minute? So how does his view of, you know, central banks adopting Bitcoin and using it as a sort of settlement layer differ? Or is it similar to this whole asymptotic money theory? Right. Well, it's, it's kind of like, is that what his thesis is? Or is he saying that the banks are going to die and, and that Bitcoin is going to take over everything? It's <laughs> well, that's funny. Yeah, because from what it seems like they, if with the, you know, the block size as it is and the diminishing block reward that you would need, you know, these large institutions to settle on chain because who else is going to be able to, you know, pay exorbitant fees for, uh, for block inclusion, right? And I think I did see a few um, of his his talks where he did kind of allude to that, where, you know, you'd have these central banks uh, settling with one another uh, using, you know, the Bitcoin blockchain. And and that's, so that becomes antithetical, like depending on who our audience is, we would have to premise all these words and stuff, but to the maximalist view where like Bitcoin's going to take over and, and put so much pressure on fiat that it's going to destroy the central banking system. Whereas that kind of view, uh, it sort of idealizes it. And there's a whole argument then where when central banks are using it as a settlement system, it becomes um, harder and harder. So this is where it's asymptotically. So it approaches um, an inability for different central banks to have differing monetary policies. So they're, the exchange rate trends start to stabilize between all of the major currencies. So those are two completely different views that don't work together. Right. So, I mean, with this whole asymptotic money concept and I, I guess they're using it as like, is it a peg where they're using it as a peg for exchange rates between? Yeah. It effectively is a peg. And um, if we're talking about ideal money and Nash's work, he explains that if you had this sort of settlement layer, or if you had something that was sort of gold-like and had a type of stability, then it would, it would sort of create a gravitational effect. And then at some point, he explains that the citizenry might sort of catch on or different thought leaders around the world and then they might call for a type of peg or for it to be realized by fiat like hey this is we're basically talking about a gold standard but using bitcoin as the thing and then you would you would the peg is implied as long as you have the ability to arbitrage then over time more and more all of the currencies stabilize and it it doesn't have to be done um purposefully right so i mean we're, we're talking about bitcoin as plumbing at that point right that would be a good analogy and um nash talks about how we might think about water as um a utility such as like a public good like like water or, or, hmm. or bitcoin sorry yeah right right so i mean how do you, is that how you foresee it playing out or is this just like one possible um, way that it could happen or are you pretty confident that that's what will happen? Well, it's interesting. Bitcoin started out, the libertarian movement sort of caught on and started to extend the argument out. And of course they're anti-government and they want their own privacy and they want self-sovereign sovereignty and their own money. And then Bitcoin ran into these scaling ceilings, which 
we do have layer two and I totally believe in lightning. I think it's great, but I think it has limitations too that aren't very favorable from that libertarian view. And then you have this Nashian view where you have Bitcoin just all it needs to be is a settlement layer and then it, it sinks or idealizes our the existing legacy currencies and it doesn't need to change or evolve to be that. So I see it as a like far easier path and quicker path to a, a very significant positive change in our global economy. But does that also mean, you know, the dream of like sort of a censorship resistant currency is dead? Because at that point, I mean, can the average person use it to, you know, buy something on Silk Road or send money to WikiLeaks if it's if it's this sort of peg for central banks like who's it who's controlling it at that point and can you can you really use it for censorship resistance the the steel man argument for that comes from eric boskill who who has uh he his blog and his works he extended on libitcoin.com and so he'll say then all of a sudden now if the citizenry isn't using bitcoin then they're not running nodes and they're not um, verifying transactions and that gives state so he sees it as state versus citizens that gives state full ability to um, change the protocol um but if you look at state it's really broken up into many different countries and these countries are, are in huge competition with each other for thinking about russia china the united states um, the Middle East, you know, you, you could just name a lot of North Korea. And so the fact that they're um, self-interested, the complexity of these different countries and their different wants and needs doesn't allow them to cooperate on such a scale against the citizenry because um, each of these nations would like to use Bitcoin in a censorship resistant way for themselves on, on a high value level. Right, right, exactly. So maybe like a Russian oligarch can, you know, move his his money around. But I mean, for the average person, is that suddenly out of reach at that point? That, yeah, that that it would be a trade off. And right. of course, if you're a libertarian and you're thinking about the individual view, you would you would hate that trade off. And one example is some of these guys are trying to make um, privacy protocols for Bitcoin so that you can um, right. basically wash your coins. And we would be leaving, potentially leaving that behind um, on the first layer. Well, that's the, yeah, that's the funny part because I, yeah, once it's, you know, you know, central banks or whoever is doing the mining, their incentives are very different. Like they're, you know, they're, they might be less concerned with like, you know, the mining reward or like the fees because, you know, this is an important component of the economy at that point so you're almost, you might even be mining at a loss and it really messes up the incentives and even like something like yeah where you're you're trying to obfuscate your activity on the blockchain they i would imagine they would probably want to keep the blockchain you know transparent and so that might come to loggerheads with you know the the current you know the, the current movement to kind of make things more private well, and then furthermore, if if it is going to be that our Bitcoin is primarily used by large institutions yeah. from the citizen review, you wouldn't really want the transactions to be private. Right, exactly. And, and yeah. that's something that I don't think 
uh, you know, a lot of Bitcoiners are exploring because they're subscribing to that maximalist view that it needs to crush the banks. Right. So, I mean, I mean, Bitcoin is still relatively small. Um, are like, is this like a forecast for the next 20 years, 50 years? Like if this were to happen, how far out do you think that would be? It's hard to tell, but you know, and another interesting point with that is you have all these stolen coins. There's, you know, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of stolen coins. And if Bitcoin became that high value settlement layer, those thieves would become million millionaires, billionaires, maybe trillionaires. And that would obviously be bad. And so like, I'm not sure the markets, if there's any intelligent from like the, you know, the markets, any intelligence from the markets, then they wouldn't, they wouldn't want that. They wouldn't get behind a project that would do that. And so whether or not we do bake in privacy protocols on a base layer may have a great effect on that. <clears throat> so why Bitcoin and not gold? If you know, why, why can't gold be that peg? Right. Uh, and that's a great question. So there are some, there are some, there's some reasons why gold was good. And then there's some reasons why gold had limitations. And one of them would be if you're going to, if gold becomes that high value settlement medium and it becomes that important thing in the world, then say you have these gold mines in Africa in a politically unstable region, you're going to have superpowers around the world trying to take over those regions to try and capture the production of that gold. So it can create political tension in the world in and of itself. But, but don't we sort of have the same thing happening? I mean, how is like, you know, mining for Bitcoins that different? You have these massive mining farms and they, they, they look for the, the most uh, cost-effective electricity in the world and they end up in Kazakhstan or they end up in China. And I mean, they're, I mean, it's obvious they're sucking power off the grid, right? So, you know, they, the, you know, government bodies know they're there and they can be just as easily co-opted as, you know, a gold mine. So how, how, how does that differ? I think they can certainly be co-opted in a sense from the state might take over um, their citizenry's minds. Um, and China's interesting because I think they were subsidizing some of the mining. Right. And so in a way that is like sort of a covert, you know, or version. Uh, but the idea is you're not, you're going to go into Africa to take over the region politically. And then you like the, the gold is physically in Africa. Whereas with Bitcoin, you're mining it, but it's sort of in the internet. It's not, it's not actually in China. It's just the fact that they have the most efficient miners. Right. And, and actually, this uh, reminds me of a tweet I said the other day, and I think you responded to it. I didn't respond to you, but you, I, I was talking about uh, specie, right? Gold, you know, the uh, property of gold where, you know, it has physical, you know, it has a physicality to it and it costs money to move. And um, I, I it kind of feels like we're, we're reinventing that in Bitcoin because, you know, as mine as sorry as uh, transaction fees rise, the cost of moving the Bitcoin is basically rising, right? So it's almost like it really is becoming uh, digital gold, right? In every sense of the word, right? Um, it used to be that well, you know, Bitcoin, you know, was better than gold in the sense that you could move it instantaneously for pennies, but as that kind of 
you know, that as that sort of stops being the case, it really is resembling, you know, physical gold, gold to a greater extent. Okay, because, I understand. Right, because yeah. if you if you're not if you can't um, transact on chain, you might be using a custodial service, right? And that's that's sort of like you know, uh, paper backed, sorry, gold backed paper, right? You you you're, you're sort of succumbing to the same kind of you know holes you know so yes. any thoughts on that yeah and so that becomes comparable like gold back paper would be mm -hmm. um like eric Voskul. he he does a blog where he he talks about how that might happen and then you'd have bitcoin back paper right but you don't have to really go that far because if you have bitcoin as a high value settlement and then you have all the fiat currencies um, being exchanged and the banks are settling Bitcoin, then you, you sort of the fiat is is the Bitcoin paper. In in the long run, it kind of works like that. Hmm. Now for gold, there's the other limitation it has when you put that kind of um, attention on it, then you all of a sudden you can start mining it at a, a higher rate. So gold right. becomes more important and the supply is not so finite. Um, in that sense, with, right. with Bitcoin, we have the difficulty adjustment algorithm, and and that keeps um, the supply predictable. Yeah, exactly. Just for the audience, I'm sure everyone's aware of this, but basically, with gold, you know, if there's higher demand for the gold, it incentivizes gold miners to mine more gold, right? But with Bitcoin, it sort of flips it on its head, where when there's more demand, um, more miners enter the scene, and that increases the difficulty. So it's it, you're right. That is one way that it it, it does differ from gold in a, in a in a big way. Yes, and so in that to that point too, you can have um, and this is all in ideal money. And one of the examples given is some um, cyanide leaching. But you could have a new technology that allows you to mine um, gold faster, and, and that can have a dramatic effect on the supply. Whereas with Bitcoin, for the same reason, you, you can't have that. So those are three reasons why we might not want to return to a gold standard, but why Bitcoin would be a little more suitable. And let's not forget about that asteroid, that gold asteroid that can crash into the earth at any point. That, that is, I mean, <laughs> it, it's obviously, if we can mine asteroids, it's not going to be as finite. And that's obviously in the future, but um, we don't know how fast we will progress. Like... Um, within probably a lifetime, that would be relevant, I would think. Well, it's interesting because I've been reading a bit about diamonds, and apparently the the man-made diamonds they've gotten they've gotten a lot better over the years to the point where they're pretty well indistinguishable from real diamonds. And so, what this has forced the industry to do is kind of focus on provenance. So they have this they they want to ensure that when you buy a diamond, you know it's the real diamond that's been mined out of the ground rather than a man-made diamond that's, you know, identical. But with gold, it's a little different because while a diamond has like sort of a unique fingerprint to it, right, in terms of the cut and whatnot, gold you can melt down, you know? So gold really is like, it. it there there's no history to it, right? You can always just melt down gold and make new gold. So and that's another way how it kind of it differs from bitcoin right bitcoin is completely transparent and gold is sort of the opposite yeah there, there is a little difference there um gold is sort of we another way it's a little more fungible than bitcoin. yeah exactly it, it may remain that way forever 
Right, right. Yeah. So the the relevant topic then to move on to would be what Nash calls the ICPI or the uh, industrial consumption price. Right. This is interesting. I like this. And there's one, you know what? Sometimes uh, Safedean has some nuggets where he he was talking once about how, you know, with the CPI, like it it looks like it might be like um, consistent over the years, but it's like, you know, in the 1930s, you might have been eating steak and now you're eating a hamburger. And so it looks like, you know, uh, like a meal is still five bucks or whatever, 10 bucks, but the quality is clearly different, right? If you're going from a steak to a hamburger. Yeah. So to that point, um, it's, we found that we might find that gold is too singular. Like it puts too much stress on it. There could, you can create political tension on it. You can put, um, you can create supply shocks, etc. Right. And then, so Nash says, well, what we could do is we could take an array of commodities. And right. so you might use oil, um, you might use different metals and you can use prices of anything too. So the cost of shipping would be um, comprised of the cost of energy of oil and stuff like that. And then that would be a form of decentralization where you're not just putting the stress on, let's say just gold. Now, how is this basket of commodities picked? Because like, like in my example, it's like, you know, a hamburger is different from a steak or with oil, you know, dependence of on oil over time will differ, right? You know, we're getting to electric cars now and whatnot. So how do, how do you pick an appropriate basket that will last over time? Or does the basket need to be adjusted over time? How does that work? Exactly. So those are the two points. So one, it, it has to be determined politically. There's no programmatic way to do it. Right. And, and so that that returns you to the difficulty that you're sort of trying to solve if you want an apolitical basis that everyone can agree on. This would be as opposed to something like the US dollar as the standard where now you're giving the power of this basis um, to, to say the Americans. And then we go back to, um, and Nash, he says, well, what if there was a miracle energy source came along and then all of a sudden, some of these um, prices that you're using, they fluctuate wildly because right. the cost to mine them or the cost to produce them changes dramatically. Yeah. And so you'd have to come in and reweight the basket, like you say, like safety is kind of pointing out, like somebody's got to come in and say, well, these things aren't as comparable or significant or important as they were in the past. So, so it becomes a non-starter from that view. And that's right. where a lot of people stop. I, I mentioned this to George Selgin and he said, yeah, not, not a very novel idea and not very desirable, but this is where Nash says, well, this, we couldn't do this this way, but he paints the picture of what we would want as an ideal basis. And this, this is where like I'm pointing out, well, Bitcoin actually solves that problem because uh, if you have, for example, a miracle energy source, yeah, then Diffi- all the difficulty, the difficulty yeah. adjustment, it self adjusts. You don't need an external ener- entity to do it. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. So you know, we've talked a bit about Nash equilibrium, asymptotic money, but what about uh, what about John Nash, the man? Well, what can you say about that? Well, most of us, if, if we're, I guess, in the Western world, that 
it's not my favorite term, but I think we know what it means. We generally, most people or many people have seen the movie of beautiful mind about right. this mathematician who starts to go crazy and, and has these episodes, but he has some brilliant discoveries. And then later on in the movie, he comes out of it and he gets his Nobel prize, etc. The, the What's interesting about his story is ideal money was a concept he came up with in the 1950s. And when he, had the idea he fled the u.s um you know apparently paranoid schizophrenic but he was trying to cash or exchange his u.s dollars for the swiss franc which from his view of his insight was of better quality and so you have this long history of him doing these things uh he was running around saying that the communists and the non or the anti-communists governments are colluding against the people and then if you look at the end of ideal money the eight page lecture that he gives he explains that like there is a comparable nature to how how they govern their money systems that um we call people call it the hidden tax or the inflation is a hidden tax and and so so you can see that there's actually logic and reason there and so i think they might need to go back in his history and his biography and relook at um the things that he was saying and whether or not maybe he was just unable to express himself well mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so <clears throat> so as i mentioned when i opened this up you do seem to be the foremost expert on nash equilibrium and nash the man i, I, I would notice- go ahead. i would say ideal money because I, I know there's 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 a couple different uh there's a couple different groups on crypto twitter there's 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 john goulson on one side and you're on the other and there's a lot of what, what's all the quarreling about the a lot of people want to take his work and give a fanciful fanciful if I'm not saying that word right, maybe, but a fantastic looking view of it and just like make it really flowery and really wordy. Okay. And I'm, I'm pointing to this saying, no, there's, there's great logic and reason here. It, it's very, very tough to approach. It, it's, it's a little easier now that um, our economy is evolving in relation to Bitcoin and we can sort of see how this might play out. Right. But, but I find that there's just a lot of people that come across it and, and want to put all these flowery words to it. And I just want to separate from that and be like, with, with Bitcoin, you have a lot of economists that say, no, Bitcoin isn't a very good money. It doesn't have a purchasing power stabilizing right. mechanism, whether it's 2% inflation or 0% inflation, it doesn't have that. So it's not, it's not actually ideal money. It can't serve as a good money. And then this Nashian view where it's, it's not the world money, it's not what everyone uses, but it happens, it happens to be decent money, but it happens to be an ideal basis for our legacy fiat um, currencies. And, and that's kind of the difference. Hmm. Well, you've given us a lot to think about. Um, is there anything else you want to uh, discuss? No, I think I think that's would be an interesting intro um, to it. It's definitely uh, a larger argument. He's definitely fleshed it out. He spoke about it and wrote about it for for twenty years. Right. And I think that over time we're going to see some 
people that are closer to central banking, um, closer to mainstream economics, I think they're going to start to relook at Bitcoin from that view and say, oh, this actually makes sense. I understand how this can um, become an important aspect of our global financial system. Well, there you have it, folks. I want to thank uh, Jolly Whiskey, who you can find on Twitter. Uh, anything you want to add where we can uh, find your, your writings? I, I know you do some stuff on Medium. That's the best place is Twitter, and I'll, I'll occasionally post my um, Medium articles on it, so you can find them there anyways. Well, that's great. Thanks for coming on, and we'll see you next time.